in uh, downtown Silver City, there's a train station, you can't miss it. As you go in the front door, there are some lockers on the right. Mr. Grisham, do you have the keys? Six identical keys. They all over the same locker. That's locker zero, zero, one. Inside the locker is a red duffel bag. Inside the red duffel bag is two million dollars. In cash, fifties and hundreds makes a pile about so big. First one there, keeps it all. <laughs> oh, and I've put little transmitting uh, devices in your key ring so that I can keep track of you. And uh, that's it. Go. You, you just can't pick people at random. I can do anything I like, Owen. I'm eccentric. Go. Wait, wait, wait. So it's like a race? A race? He's a race. I hope I win. Excuse me. Excuse me. I'm in a race. Excuse me. Excuse me. He's a race. Sorry. What is he doing? I think he's sleeping. S sleeping? Well, he must be narcoleptic. It's a, a rare sleeping disorder. That's the start of one of my favorite movies, uh, the movie Rat Race. Life is nothing. It's a nothing. It's a nothing but a fat rat race. Do you see that movie, Rat Race? Well, you should. You need to see it. John Cleese plays this eccentric Las Vegas uh, casino owner who puts $2 million in this locker in Silver City, New Mexico, and then invites six different groups of, of people or individuals to race each other uh, to the locker while he and his rich friends bet on who will win. It's a rat race, and we often think of this world as a rat race, and I think we think sometimes of God as the eccentric casino owner just waiting to see who wins. <laughs> well, Enrico, played by Mr. Bean, uh, falls asleep because he has narcolepsy. I remember when I first heard about narcolepsy, and I think probably when I first saw this movie, I remember thinking, dang, I wish I had narcolepsy. Let's pray. Lord God, you know that I woke up at 3.30 this morning and thought, crap. I'm supposed to preach about sleep, and I'm wide awake. Lord God, you know my struggle with sleep, but I thank you that you do give sleep, and I thank you that your word is true, depending, not depending on whether or not I believe it, but in fact, my believing it is, is dependent upon your word. So I pray, Lord God, that you would implant your word deeper in our heart this morning, and you would cause us to believe the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to preach on what has traditionally been my least favorite verse in all the Bible, Psalm 127, verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. It's that last line that drives me crazy. The Lord gives to his beloved sleep. I can't tell you the number of nights that I've laid awake eating the bread of anxious toil, unable to sleep. I worry about my house, worry about my family, I worry about my city, mostly me, 
And in my church, I lie awake filled with anxiety, unable to sleep, fully aware that Jesus said, do not be anxious for your life, your psyche. And St. Paul said, have no anxiety about anything. I lie awake worried about all these things and then worry that I'm worried, that I'm so restless and, and I, can't, I can't rest and God commands rest. Shabbat, rest, stop, Sabbath, I anxiously toil begging God for sleep and I don't sleep. And then I remember Psalm 127 verse two, the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. And I think, oh my God, you don't love me. I mean, how, how hard do I have to pedal to get you to love me so you'll give me some, some sleep? I'm pedaling, God, I'm pedaling as, as fast as I can. About 3 a.m., I wake up thinking, well, what if I just stop pedaling? What if I just stop? What if I lose? What if I'm last and I'm least? What if we host a conference and nobody comes? Oh, what if we host a conference and everybody comes and it sucks? What if they all blame me? What if they all reject me, put me on trial, cast me out? What if I, what if I can't guard your church, Lord God? Well, what if I can't guard her and, and uh, I know there's evil that wants to destroy her. What if they lay siege to the walls and leave not one stone on top of another? What if they nail me to a tree? What if I die? I cry out, God, I'm anxiously toiling at sleep. Why won't you give me sleep? I want him to put me to sleep on demand, like a drug. I want narcolepsy whenever and wherever I choose. But that's the problem with sleep. Sleep is the loss of conscious control. It's like choosing to stop choosing, or deciding not to decide, or thinking not to, to think, striving to rest. Sleep is surrendering control, but you can't surrender control by seizing control. That's the problem with sleep. And this too, sleep is the loss of conscious control, and sometimes it's the loss of conscious control with the illusion that you are in total control, although you're not at all in control. You're dreaming, which raises a fascinating question. How do you know that you're not asleep right now, dreaming that you're in total control? Well, sleep is strange, and that's the problem with sleep. You can't simply choose it, and, and you don't always know when, and when, when you, you have it. You could be dreaming that you're not sleeping. Well, we all want sleep, and yet we don't want sleep. I mean, like Enrico in the movie didn't want sleep. Mr. Bean didn't want sleep, for he knew that if he slept, he wouldn't win the race, the rat race. I find it fascinating that Scripture often refers to physical death as, as sleep. Maybe falling asleep is like I mean, that's weird, right? We sleep every day. Why is it? Why did God set it up? Why is it like, I mean, scientists? Maybe falling asleep is like practice for death. Death is certainly the loss of conscious control or what we think is conscious control. Because <laughs> after all, we could just be dreaming that we're in control. 
Well, maybe falling asleep is like practice for death, and maybe death can actually be waking from the dream that you're in control. Well, enough uh, philosophizing. Uh, uh, the psalm says the Lord gives to his beloved sleep, and, and sleep at least means sleep. And Jesus was really, really good at sleep, almost as if he was like Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of rest, Lord of sleep. But now Jesus wasn't always sleepy. I mean, he definitely got things done, right? He wasn't lazy. I'm not talking about laziness. And he was acquainted with sorrow. He wasn't just lost in his own dreams. He certainly was willing to suffer for another. But it's hard to think of Jesus as anxiously toiling. That wasn't his thing. It's hard to imagine him frazzled or busy or too stressed to sleep. In spite of this entire world of pain, he knew just when to cross the lake and get some rest. He didn't simply know the way or know about the way. It's like he was the way. Do you remember when he fell asleep on the boat in the storm? To me, that's like the greatest miracle in the whole Bible. Falls asleep on a boat in a storm. The disciples are anxiously toiling against the storm. Then they wake him terrorized, absolutely terrorized that they're all going to die. And Jesus appears to be like a little bit perturbed that they woke him up during his nap and then he just calms the storm. But what would have happened if they hadn't awakened him from his nap? I don't know. Maybe Jesus didn't know. You know, Scripture says, Jesus said there were things that he didn't know. I, I don't know, maybe he didn't know. We don't know what would have been, but whatever would have been, Jesus didn't seem to be at all worried about what would have been. He wasn't at all afraid to go to sleep. And he was remarkably unafraid to die. And now speaking as a pastor who for more than a decade was kind of known as Mr. Church Growth, and then for more than a decade known as just like totally not, This, this is seriously what truly amazes me about Jesus. And, and this also explains why in the end, everyone turned against him and nailed him to a tree in a garden. Think about this. At one point, Jesus literally had throngs of people chasing after him to make him king. I mean, he appeared to have everyone and everything under his control. He had most of Jerusalem chanting, Hosanna to the son of David. And yet he appears to have totally surrendered that control. He allowed his house, I mean, this is shocking when you think about it. He allowed his house, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, to crumble. He allowed the city of Jerusalem to be literally obliterated. He allowed the temple, the house of the Lord, to be utterly destroyed. He allowed his ministry, his church, his movement, he allowed it all to crumble, and and he allowed his enemies to take him and nail him to a tree because he thought that's what his father was doing. He said, I only do what I see my father doing He was remarkably good at sleep and dying. Not suicide, because that's not really dying, but surrender, delivering up his spirit, expiring. (sighs) 
Psalm 127. Let's just look at the look at the whole thing. A song of ascents. Scholars think this refers to songs sung by worshipers ascending or going up to the temple, the temple built by Solomon, son of David, in the city of David, Jerusalem. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. But I mean, that's kind of cool. But if the Lord builds the house, why should we build it all? In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon wrote this. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. If the Lord builds a house, why should we build it all? If the Lord watches over the city, why should we stay awake and watch at all? And, and yet God commands the Israelites to watch Jerusalem. And he commands them to build a house, even a house for him. What house is Solomon referred to? You've probably never been driving down the road and seen like the Lord build a house. And yet, have you ever seen a house that the Lord did not build? Because like who makes wood? Who made stones? Who made builders? And who made the will in those builders to build, build, a, build a house, a, a will to, to work? And maybe Solomon is referring to any and all houses. Maybe he's referring to families and in specific children. In Hebrew, the word for build and house and son and daughter, it's all comes from the same Hebrew root. And, and you remember, God always refers to families as houses, right? The house of Abraham, the house of Israel, the house of, of Judah, etc., etc. In fact, most of the drama of the, uh, of the Bible is all about how to build houses that are also families. Abraham wanted to build his house. He tried to build his house, you remember, with Hagar, but God was determined that his house would be built through Sarah. Jacob's wives literally get into a baby-making contest. I mean, go back. The Bible's just such a crack-up. Go back and read this. They get into a baby-making contest using their maids, even buying and selling Jacob, who becomes Israel, like a gigolo. Buying and selling him for mandrakes, all in an effort to build the house of Israel. They anxiously toil, but only God can make a baby. So maybe Solomon is referring to any old house. Maybe he's referring to families that are houses, and maybe he's referring to God's house. Remember, Solomon, son of David, builds God's house. David wanted to build it, but God wouldn't let him. He informed David that a son of David would build him a house. We think that's Solomon. But it's not just Solomon. Uh, for his stone temple is destroyed and all the stone replacements are destroyed. The last one was destroyed 40 years before, after Jesus, the son of David and prince of peace, prince of peace, like Solomon says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. We now know that that temple that Jesus was talking about is eternal and that temple is us. His family, his little brothers and sisters, his house, his body, and his bride. And oh yeah, it's also a city. The new Jerusalem, not the one that David built and the Romans destroyed, but the one that comes down from God that we read about and studied for a year and a half in the Revelation. 
And that leads to a fascinating thought. The entire time that Israel anxiously toiled at building a house and watching over the city, God was building them and watching over them, his house and his city. That's an interesting twist in Scripture. Years ago, a friend of ours gave our kids a, a box turtle named Myrtle. And one evening, my son John and I decided to build Myrtle a house and a little city, a turtle pen, on the side of our house in, in Golden. John was just a little boy, and frankly, to be honest, I was quite better at designing and building uh, turtle habitats. So after a time, I pretty much did all the thinking, and I pretty much did all the labor, and, and John just watched. And, and finally, he said, Daddy, I don't want to build Myrtle a house. I'm going inside. And I think I heard God whisper, Peter, I'm not asking you to build a turtle pen. I'm asking you to build a, I'm asking you to build a son by building a turtle pen together. Well, I'm just saying God has us build houses, watch over cities, but you are God's house. And we are God's city. I have anxiously toiled to build me and you and watch over us, but maybe all that anxious toil is in vain. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. That can also be translated, for he gives these things, the house and the city, to his beloved in sleep. I would suppose it means both of those, both of those things, for you see, I don't anxiously toil for a house that I know I already have. I don't toil for it. I fall asleep in it. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. There's just no point to it. Eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. His beloved, that is beloved of Yahweh, forms a name in Hebrew, Yedidiah or Jedidiah, which you remember is also a name for Solomon. Solomon built the stone temple on the spot where David confessed his anxious toil over building the house of Israel and watching over the city of Jerusalem when he, when he had Israel numbered. The spot is also the spot, or at least the mountaintop, on which Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, building the temple that is us. God called Jesus my beloved son. And Jesus didn't build his temple with anxious toil. It was more like he built his temple by surrendering our anxious toil. He built the eternal temple by surrendering control, by, by dying. So just as God put the first Adam to sleep and then formed Eve, made Eve from Adam's bleeding side, maybe he put the second Adam to sleep and formed us from his bleeding side. Whatever the case, Jesus did not create us or his kingdom with anxious toil. He created us with faith in his Father. And he is faith 
in, in his Father. He gives us himself that we might lose our lives and find them, uh, that we might choose to die with him and rise with him. The ability to lie down in a storm on a boat and fall asleep, or the ability to hang on a cross and surrender your spirit <sighs> is called faith. Well, Solomon is the beloved, Jesus is the beloved, and I am the beloved. And the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. And once in my life, God did give me sleep like a drug, like narcolepsy. <laughs> it came in the form of, of knowledge. It wasn't a knowledge that I took like fruit from a tree or laws from a book. It was knowledge that was given like spirit offered up on a cross that then fills uh, the temple with, with fire, with living, with living fire. It happened about 25 years ago. I've told you about numerous times. It was the day I told God that I was gonna stop preaching. I was gonna stop peddling, because obviously all my peddling was just in vain. It was the day that, that God caused me to miraculously confess my hatred for his house and his city, the church. It was the day that he literally made me stop. He literally held me to the floor for about an hour. It was the day that something like a veil was lifted in my mind, and for a time I saw or I knew or I perceived that God was absolutely everywhere, loving me absolutely, and all the time I am his beloved. It was then that I heard the Lord speaking within my soul, and this is what he said. Peter, stop being a dork. Stop doubting my love for you. It was then that I knew that he knew me. <laughs> he knew the language I spoke. He knew me and he loved me for he had made me, already made me. I didn't need to anxiously toil at creating myself. I tell people about the experience and what I learned and they'll often say, well, what difference did it make? And I'm not totally sure. I still basically did what I always did, but I did it with a different energy. I still peddled. But none of my pedaling was anxious toil, and this was the weirdest thing of all. Every night, the moment my head hit the pillow, I fell sound asleep. It lasted for about three weeks. Then it kind of like wore off. I've asked God to do it again, and I've asked God to do it for everyone in, in church. And so far, he hasn't done it, but I feel like he's told me, Peter, this is what I'm doing all the time. This is what I'm doing in the womb of space and time. I'm giving birth to faith in y'all. Faith in your creator and his word. Now, Peter, preach faith as my gift of grace. You know, according to Scripture, faith is everything God desires within us. Faith is everything he desires. Faith is not the result of your anxious toil. And yet faith is the end of your anxious toil, all anxious toil. Faith is the one thing Adam lacked in the garden. And, and you know that lack resulted in a lot of anxious toil for it made Adam susceptible to this lie. You must make yourself good like God by taking knowledge of the good and applying it to your life with a whole freaking lot of anxious toil. In Hebrew, that's the word hatseb. 
anxious toil. It only shows up seven times in Scripture. The first is in Genesis 3 when the Lord says to the woman, who is a picture of all of us, right, the, the bride of Christ, when he says to the woman, he says, because you have done this in hetzeb, in anxious toil, you will bring forth children. I find it fascinating uh, because a mother who gives birth knows something that the rest of us really don't know, at least not, we, we don't know very well. She knows that she did not make the baby. <laughs> And yet she does give birth to the baby. The anxious toil did not make the baby, but maybe it makes her appreciate the baby. A baby is the gift of life born through, through her earthen vessel. Birth is anxious toil until she surrenders the life inside of her and finds it in her arms, <laughs> held tightly to her breast. In Proverbs 10, Solomon writes this. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he has no hetzeb with it. Also translated, like in the ESV footnote, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and hetzeb, anxious toil, adds nothing to it. Anxious toil adds nothing to the blessing, except perhaps the knowledge that we can't make the blessing with our anxious toil. <laughs> the blessing. You know, we talk a whole lot about original sin, but it seems we've forgotten to talk about original blessing, which the Bible mentions first. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, male and female, blessed them. Seventh day, all is blessed, and everything is good, and the seventh day is eternal. God blessed them. But in the next chapter, we'll read about the sixth day. On, on the sixth day, in Genesis chapter two, Adam didn't know that he was blessed. How do we know that? Because he couldn't find his helper, who is the blessing. Adam means humanity, and Scripture teaches that God alone is our helper, and God alone is the good. On the sixth day of creation, Adam did not have knowledge of the good. He didn't know God is good and didn't know God had made him good. And that's why Adam and Eve and you and me are tempted to take knowledge of the good, the good that's always given. We're, we're tempted to take knowledge of the good to make ourselves good. We're tempted to justify ourselves with the law in the power of the flesh. That's anxious toil. We're tempted to make ourselves good, which is a revelation of the bad in us, which is our lack of faith in God, who is always good and so good to us. Maybe the bad is trying to take what is always given. And faith is the knowledge that everything is given. For God is good. And now I can just point to something that we cannot fully comprehend, but something that I think is in the process of fully comprehending us. It's, it's a knowledge that we cannot take but a knowledge that is given. In fact, it's forgiven. That's the knowledge that not only does God make the house, it's already been made. <laughs> it's forgiven, F-O-R-E-G-I-V-E-N. And not only does God guard the city, it's already eternal. Well, it is eternal. It's not already an eternal. It's eternal, eternal in, in the heavens. Remember what we saw in the Revelation, an eternal Jerusalem that descends 
from heaven. That's God's house. Paul writes that this Jerusalem, this Jerusalem above, is our mother. Not will be our mother, but is our mother. And check this out, that Jerusalem is us. The finished us. We see the new Jerusalem after we watch the old one destroyed. In, first, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. Listen closely. For we know that if the earthly tabernacle or, or temple, that was the tent temple, remember? For we know that if the earthly tabernacle, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have, not will have, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, including our hands. We have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that we're already seated in the heavenly places with Christ or, or in, in Christ. Genesis 1:37, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it, it was very good. Remember, we've talked about this. That's on the seventh day, the eternal day. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. If you're a thing that God made, you are very good. But if you think that you are a thing that you made, you're a vain illusion. You're a bad dream. Solomon wrote, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. And nothing can be taken away from it. In other words, the true you and all the new creation is very good, and your anxious toil can add nothing to it or to you. Your anxious toil builds your ego, but that's an illusion and a bad dream. And yet through your anxious toil, God gives birth to knowledge, knowledge that he is good, and he makes you good, and that knowledge is called faith. Faith in grace. So God has built the house. And God has built the city. He is the good and the good in everything that he has built. And now in the sixth day of creation, he's creating faith in us with a revelation of who he is. He is the good freely given on a tree in a garden at the end of the sixth day at the edge of the eternal seventh day, which is God's rest. What we think we take has always been given. And on the tree he cries, it is finished. And that's why I can sleep. Or perhaps wake up. A few days ago, I went to sleep thinking about this message, and then I, I kept waking up with this word on my mind, tardema. It means deep sleep, and it appears in the Bible seven times. The first time is the first instance of sleep ever, ever recorded. Adam, which is humanity, if you remember, Genesis chapter 2, is alone and cannot find his helper even though his helper is right next to him. Scripture teaches that God alone is our helper, and Jesus says that God alone is good. Adam doesn't know the good, and so he doesn't trust the good, his helper. It's then that God says something utterly bizarre. Carl pointed this out last week. We talked about it when we studied Genesis and the Revelation, but God literally says this. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
you do not eat. For in the day of eating, dying you do die. So did Adam eat? I mean, I still don't know quite how to answer this question. God says he doesn't eat. But that when he eats, dying he will die. Or maybe sleeping he will sleep. So did Adam eat? Or I could ask the question this way. Did we take the life of the good on the tree called the cross? We thought we did, but we cannot take what has always been given. I mean, we thought we took his life, but maybe our control was just an illusion. Jesus even said as much, no one takes it from me, my life. I lay it down. I give it. Well, he is our helper made fit for us, his bride, made fit by God on a tree. Well, anyway, right after God says, you do not eat, and, and the Adam can't find the helper, God causes a tartamaw, a deep sleep, to fall on the Adam, and from the Adam's side, he makes Adam's bride, which is us, and, and he begins to tell the story of our redemption. The Bible doesn't mention God waking humanity from the tartamaw, the deep sleep, until the seventh and last time tartamaw is mentioned, and that's in Isaiah chapter 29. To Jerusalem... God's house, God's temple, and God's bride. To Jerusalem, Isaiah writes this. Suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts, and all that fight against you, all your enemies, will be like a dream, a vision of the night. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of tardemah. Isaiah prophesies that, that they will dream that they are destroyed and then wake up to the reality that they are the eternal bride of the living God. They are his house, his city, his beloved. And then they won't know the good like a law in a book, but the good will be like a living desire rising within their heart. You see, sometimes I've, I've wondered if all our sin and all our anxious toil is like a bad dream, like choosing nothingness, a bad dream that God allows so we can wake to the reality that he is good. We, we've dreamed a dream that's become a nightmare, that we can take knowledge of the good and make ourselves in the image of God. Yet God reveals that we cannot take his life from the foundation of the world. He's always given his life. His life is his word, through whom all that's made has been made. Now, I don't know if I said all of that just right, but God is the good, and he has made us good. And at the tree, he creates knowledge in us that this is so, that living knowledge is faith. We wake from the dream of our own control when we hear him cry, Father, forgive. They know not, and it is finished. We wake when we realize that everything is grace, the grace of God. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, writes Paul, and Christ will give you light. Sometimes I have a dream in a dream. And it's reality waking me from my dream. 
Sometimes the kingdom of God seems to you like a dream, but it's a reality. It is the reality waking you up from your dream. We are most deeply asleep at the switch when we fancy we control any switches at all, writes Annie Dillard. We sleep to time's hurdy-gurdy. We wake to the presence of God. This world is not a rat race, and you are not a rat. This is your father's world, and you are his beloved. The house is built. The city is eternal. And so there's no point to all your anxious toil. And now your ego will say, your ego will say, okay, great, that's just really, that's nice, preacher, thanks. But then why toil at all? If there's no point to my anxious toil, why toil at all? Why build at all? Why, why watch at all? Why love God at all? Why love my neighbor at all? Why be good at all? Why peddle at all? Monday is my day of rest, my, my Sabbath. I love Monday. Because I sit in my office all week, I, I like to ride my bike on Monday. When my youngest was five years old, I would take him with me. We borrowed a, a bike trailer from friends that looked kind of like this. It used to scare Susan, but Coleman, Coleman, man, he just totally loved it. I'd attach it to the back of my mountain bike, and while the other kids were at school, Coleman and I would just take off, racing down the trails from Morrison to Denver where we'd get hot dogs and nachos, and it was always a party. Because I needed a workout and because it was fun, I would always ride really fast and I'd ride in high gear and, and Coleman always had a blast and, until one day. I could tell something was bothering him. We had pulled off to the side of, of the pass somewhere along the way. His eyes no longer shined at me with the usual faith, hope, and love with which they shined whenever he would look at me when he was, was five, but not, but not this day. He seemed distant, and Lee was no longer having fun. I remember he said, Daddy, th there's something I, I have to tell you. And I looked at him and went, Coleman, buddy, what is it? You can tell me. And he said, well, Daddy, um... Daddy, there was a, a place back there where um, I wasn't peddling. <laughs> he thought I needed him to peddle. He wondered if I would love him just the same if he didn't peddle. Or hard enough, pedal hard enough. He didn't realize that because of the way those bikes were geared and because I was a grown man and he was just a five-year-old little boy, his pedaling actually accomplished nothing except his joy and my joy. I didn't need him to pedal, and yet I wanted him to pedal because I wanted him to share my joy. I said, oh, buddy, well, look, buddy, you don't have to pedal, but thank you for whenever you do pedal. I remember his face just like, it just lit up, and, and I could tell now, now he wanted to pedal. It was no longer anxious toil. It was a taste of heaven. He just enjoyed doing what his father was doing and doing it with his father. Nothing to prove. 
just someone to be. The image and likeness of his dad. On the sixth day of the week, the word of our Father took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and said, this is the covenant, the eternal covenant in my blood. Pour it out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. This is not the bread of anxious toil. This is the revelation of what God, your Father, is doing, which is what He has always done. This is the revelation of who you are and that it is finished. This is how the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. And this is how he wakes us all from the dead. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice, and they are both the life of Christ, the life of the beloved given to you. Why don't you take a seat, close your eyes, and just listen to this last song.
just to be clear, the idea that we separated ourselves from God and that he no longer loves us is a vain illusion. It's a bad dream. But this is not a dream. Or maybe I should say this is God's dream. God's dream is called reality. This is how God gives his dream to us so that our dreams will become his dream. This is the word spoken into the void that creates all things, including you. See, it turns out that we're not the dreamer. We are God's dream. And God's dream is called reality. Now, there are all sorts of reasons, I should say, for sleeplessness. So I don't want to heap anybody with shame. But with me, I think it often boils down to the fact that my heart still believes this lie. And that is that Peter Hyatt can get things done with anxious toil. The truth is that with anxious toil, I can accomplish nothing. But with faith, hope, and love, God accomplishes all things, or has accomplished all things, even through me. They're called good works, which God prepared beforehand that I would walk in them. So I think I will know the way because I will want to walk in the way, even if it's hard. And I will know it's not the way when I notice that I'm striving with anxious toil. At 3 a.m., I, I think, I think I'm just barely beginning to recognize anxious toil, and I'm beginning to believe, well, with this, we can accomplish nothing. And when I believe that, not just with my head, but with my heart, I fall asleep. You cannot build the house of God with anxious toil, and your ego will then say, well, why toil? Why toil at all? Why pedal at all? You see, I think that's a little like saying, well, if only God can make a baby, <laughs> why make love to my bride at all? Why make love to the bridegroom at all? Psalm 127 ends with these three verses. This will be quick. Behold, look, says Solomon, children are an inheritance. They're, they're a gift. You inherit them. From the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. See, it's counterintuitive but you cannot make a baby with anxious toil. A baby is often born through anxious toil, but a baby is made by the grace of God, and only God can make a baby. You are born of anxious toil, and when you see, but when you see that it is finished, none of your toil will be anxious. 
and all of your work will be rest. Like riding your bike on the Sabbath. And that's called the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, it's at hand. So may you believe the gospel and walk in it even now. In his name, amen.